0: Welcome to this episode of Salty Talks. I'm the host, Corinne Newfie, and today we're going to delve into the world of experimental farms. Nestled in the tranquil waters of Flows Cove in Walpole, Maine, ARI's experimental farm at the Darling Marine Center stands as a beacon of marine research and education. Low's Cove, with its serene and picturesque setting, provides the perfect backdrop for innovative marine science, a pivotal component of the Aquaculture Research Institute. I sat down with a few of our researchers to talk about what exactly an experimental farm is and what sort of research ARI is carrying out.
1: So, my name is Chris. I'm a graduate researcher uh, here at the Darling Marine Center, uh, and I study scallops, which are this really cool new emerging species of aquaculture that's been kind of grown pretty rapidly globally. And I essentially just study how to grow them
2: to market size. My name's Adam Saint-Gelais. God, who am I? Hang on, strike that. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Adam saint I'm an aquaculture innovation specialist with Aquaculture Research Institute at the University of Maine. I'm based here at the Darling Center. I assist with a broad suite of research largely focused on low trophic level species like oysters, mussels, scallops, uh, with a particular focus on seaweeds at the moment. So it's going to be high interesting one. It's going to be <laughs> yeah. like, how adept is your audience at telling the difference between three relatively nondescript?
3: <laughs> 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 My name is Tom Kiffney. I uh, am a graduate student slash transitioning to a postdoc <laughs> at the University of Maine. Um, and I'm also interested in all things uh, low trophic aquaculture. Uh, but right now I'm mostly focused on oysters.
0: Before getting into today's discussion, I wanted to briefly touch on the intricacies of aquaculture leasing. Our coastline, dotted with its cold, nutrient-rich waters, offers prime real estate for farming. To access these waters, there are structures and protocols in place. So I had Adam explain the aquaculture leasing in the state of Maine and how the experimental farm fits into all of this.
2: Aquaculture leasing in the state of Maine is structured in a tiered setup, so there are Uh, different levels of leasing. So the the lowest is a limited purpose aquaculture license, which is what has allowed Maine's aquaculture, I think, to grow grow really rapidly in the recent past because it's a very low barrier to entry, but you only get 400 square feet of ocean. So largely anybody can get one of these and kind of tinker around in the ocean, sort of entry-level farming. The middle tier is called an experimental lease. Those are where growers, say, who are operating on LPAs and want to try something a slightly larger scale can get up to four acres. These leases are only available for three-year periods, and for most people, they're non-renewable. So you're expected, after you trial something on one of these sites, to move to a standard lease, which is the next tier. The experimental lease that we have at the University of Maine, based at the Darling Center, is a little bit different because we're an educational institution and our lease is solely for research. We're allowed to renew that every three years, which gives us a solid footprint where we can do experimental aquaculture into the foreseeable future. Right. I think it bears noting too,
1: that it's kind of seen as a transition to the standard lease predominantly, right? Like they get the experimental lease, but because it takes so long to get a standard lease, like up to two years, the experimental is much faster. They get that and then they can transition to a standard naturally.
0: In the intricate landscape of aquaculture, the link between research and its application can sometimes be elusive. At the Experimental Farm, the Aquaculture Research Institute thoughtfully bridges this gap, facilitating collaboration between scientists and industry. Through the lens of scallop growth, seaweed innovation, and oyster farming, we explore the questions posed at the Experimental Farm and how answers can provide tangible benefits to those working on Maine's waters. With insights from Chris, Adam, and Tom, this next segment takes a deep dive into the confluence of research and real-world applications.
1: Our experimental lease um, encompasses a lot of things, but the one thing I always bring up is that uh, it's, it's a very inefficient lease commercially. I would say like, if we had to sell our scallops, we would probably be selling them at $200 a scallop to be viable. But the experimental lease is really valuable because it's so close to researchers and it has so much um, infrastructure around it. Um, So a lot of what we do, uh, particularly for the grow out phase, that's the phase where they're actually growing the animal in the water to harvest size. We can test at really fine scale, new and novel gear types that people bring to us. And then the next thing that a lot of us like to do in Maine is scale up to a commercial scale farm. And so um, I partner with Vertical Bay Farms, they're a new scallop grower in the area. And uh, they actually run a ton of experiments for us. Um, It allows us to um, usually write funding and grants. So we actually can pay them for their time on the water, which helps them out in these emerging aquaculture fields. And then we can continue just kind of working with them. And it allows us to get the research from the experimental farm to growers and disseminate it out into the community better, which I think is something that science isn't always great at, and particularly academia isn't always great at. It's actually taking these really cool Higher level academic ideas and pushing them out and to be used, which is kind of all of our goals. Aquaculture scientists. Vertical Bay has run a number of experiments. Um, right now, my actual PhD research is looking at a Japanese technique called ear hanging of scallops. So, when we grow scallops traditionally in Maine, um, you see something called a lantern net, which is just this tiered net of mesh, and you put scallops in it. Um, it's it's not super efficient. Um, we have a Ton of issues with it. It's really difficult and labor intensive. So, we've taken this really successful technique called Japanese ear hanging and brought it here. And Vertical Bay is essentially running growth studies for us. And it's really nice because we can actually say, like, this is a grower. Um, if we were to grow it at our farm, you know, we would potentially not be getting actual commercial conditions. So, they're doing that. They're also running fixed gear trials, um, which we have at our experimental farm. And they're a similar comparison, so another study unit. Sorry, I meant to say rigid, rigid tray gear. So um, the the gear itself is, uh, the idea is that instead of it being a lantern net, which is kind of this mesh bag that really is difficult to work with, um, we have these fixed plastic trays that kind of can be more modular and stackable with the idea being that, you know, as we get more hydraulics and mechanization out there and scale, uh, they'll be easier for growers to work with. And then um, they've also just done timing studies as well, looking at when to move scallops in particular.
2: You know, Chris. Had, Chris's example is a great example of working sort of co-production of knowledge, right? Like working directly with a researcher on a research project on their farm. I think another value to having to sort of the, the, the research farm model that we're working with here at the Darling Center at the University of Maine um, Is that it allows the research community to engage the industry so that we're taking a much more of a participatory approach to research as opposed to, I think Chris mentioned like a top down, right? So researchers say, oh, here's a cool idea. And then they do it. And then they try to disseminate that information to the industry. And that works sometimes, but sometimes the pushback from industry is, well, that's not really what we need. So by having this platform. It sort of, it gives us those conduits to industry to create partnerships and actually talk with them and ask the growers, what is it that you need or what is it that we can do on the research farm that would help to move you forward, right? So as a, you know, a good example, I I had a good conversation with Brianna Warner, who is the CEO of Atlantic Sea Farms the other day, because I work in the seaweed space right now pretty closely, and we just got some really exciting new technology, um, they're called photobioreactors. They allow us to really change the face of what seaweed nurseries look like and really increase the capabilities of what we're allowed to do. And, you know, I was having a conversation with her and saying, you know, here are some of the directions I'm thinking that we can take this lab. And she dropped some just phenomenal ideas on me that I haven't even thought of, you know, and a lot of it was centered around, you know, some of the things that you're talking about, Adam, are things that we can tackle in-house as an, in, as the industry. But here are the things that we would love to see happen that we just either don't have the bandwidth, time, or capital to do, where partnering with the university to do that work is really valuable. And I, it's, so I think that's a really interesting outgrowth of this model is when you create those relationships with growers and you create that trust, they feel then comfortable sharing with you some of these ideas that they would like to see you pursue. And it saves us because at least from my perspective, I try to work really collaboratively and, and a very applied nature with industry and making sure that we're asking the right questions from a research perspective is really valuable because if researchers are an eclectic bunch right and, and eccentric we can be because this is really cool and let's go down this rabbit hole and we do and it's really fun and we get cool results but then the industry's like <laughs> so you know making sure we have that open line of dialogue and and using the research farm as a platform to do that has been really valuable
0: and just a quick explanation of what the photobioreactor is that adam was mentioning
2: um it's a blinky kelp robot. It's really cool technology that allows us to really carefully control the growth of a specific life phase of micro- macroalgae, sorry. So when you picture say a kelp blade in the ocean, you probably think of a big lasagna noodle floating in the ocean. That's what we're trying to grow when we're farming kelp, and that's one part of the life cycle. There's a secondary life phase called a gametophyte, which is what the the kelp blades themselves produce, and that's where Uh, you have males and females. They're microscopic. They're these little filamentous tufts that grow in the water. And the photobioreactors allow us to grow that life stage in a really controlled way. So that allows us to take a macroalgae species and actually isolate individual males and females and then culture those biomasses up really large so that we can start doing things like strain selection or exploring novel species or... You know, trying to create strains that maybe have higher levels of valuable compounds, for example, or higher growth rates. Um, And it's also, as the industry scales, could be a real economic driver towards cost, savings and efficiency in the nursery. Um, it, It requires a lot less space, a lot less water, a lot less energy. Um, so it could also decrease the, the carbon footprint of production for seaweed as well. So we're really excited to have one here. Um, they're made by a company called Industrial Plankton. I think there are four of them in existence right now. We have the fourth one. The other three are Canadian, and they live in Canada. <laughs> so I think we're the only one that has them in the States right now, so it's it's really special.
3: In a similar vein to Adam and, and Chris, uh, the oyster industry in Maine has been around uh, a lot longer uh, than the seaweed uh, and the scallop industry uh, and so they kind of have some different questions and have um, a lot of experience uh, experimenting um, on their own sites as well and so sometimes uh, we're playing catch up uh, and testing some things out with them as well so the dmc experimental farm is kind of unique uh, in that it has its subtitle lease so an area that is uh, never drains it's always covered in water uh, but we also have two intertidal tracks so one that fully drains on each low tide Uh, and one that is a shallow subtidal site, so that it gets really shallow, but the ground isn't really exposed, uh, which is pretty unique. And so farmers in Maine typically grow their oysters either in in floating cages on the surface of the water uh, or they just spread them out along the bottom of the ocean. Uh, But recently, some farmers have been experimenting uh, with intertidal and shallow subtidal gear, uh, which is oyster bags or tubes that are attached to a fixed post or lawn line in the intertidal zone. And so when the water comes in, Those bags rotate around that post and flip up um, and tumble the oysters. And when the tide goes out, they fall back down uh, and dry and control biofouling, which is a really great uh, way of farming. uh, It's kind of catching on. And so uh, we started experimenting with uh, those gear types and answering some questions down at the DMC. Um, We approached Mook Sea Farm in the upper Damascada River, uh, which is an excellent oyster-growing area. If we could run and track some oysters... On their site as well and they said yeah totally could you answer this question for us we wanted to see uh, what density effects were going on in their intertidal farm and so we were able to stock a bunch of oysters at different densities and find that they could increase their densities by about 50 percent without any adverse effects to the shape of their oysters uh, which is really great to do some of the research that we were excited about answering, but also answer some questions that farmers had specifically. Another, just a a quick example that popped into my head about (laughs) um, collaborations that we've had with other uh, oyster farms that needed a specific question answered. Um, And this was a farm site up in Trenton, Maine, um, near Acadia, that had a lease site that had some uh, very strict uh, conditions put on it. So they weren't allowed to sink their gear over the winter um, because it may create a turbidity, plume that could possibly impact uh, an eelgrass bed that was nearby. Um, However, uh, as things goes on, there wasn't much, there wasn't a very clear idea that if there was any potential impact at all. So um, they got permission to raise and sink small portions of their farms, um, and we deployed sensors uh, to actually see if we could track and visualize some of these plumes that could occur. Um, And those studies are still ongoing. Farm chain TANs. Uh, And so now we are going to repeat the study uh, this fall and spring uh, to see if there are any potential impacts. Uh, And that data will then go to DMR uh, and support their decision to see if they can uh, raise those restrictions or if those restrictions should stay in place.
0: In the dynamic arena of industry collaboration, we've heard how the experimental farm serves as a vital bridge, connecting these real-world challenges with scientific rigor. In addition to these collective endeavors, there are also individual curiosities and research pursuits that fuel our experts. How does the experimental farm with its unique setting and resources enable Chris, Adam, and Tom to chase their specific questions?
1: You could say my realm is growing. i traditionally, I'm actually an ecologist and a statistician. And so coming to aquaculture is really nice because aquaculture systems are like really simplified ecology. And that's what I thought. And of course I was wrong coming in. They're actually also really complex, turns out. But, um, you know, you do this work in a lab and what you do uh, when you're researching like an animal in a lab is you try and eliminate all outside variables and you test one single variable like temperature or salinity or food quality that quickly breaks down in the field. So as an ecologist, we basically look at all these different factors and variables coming in study them and then statistically analyze them, um, to kind of determine what's actually happening. So we can predict certain factors. Um, like I said, you, you realize really quickly that, you know, you think, oh, scallops are bounded by temperature you know, that's what matters. But then, you know, you realize like current matters because if the current's too high, they won't be able to feed. If the current's too low, they won't get enough food. Um, what type of chlorophyll are they getting? Are they getting? debris or detritus in there that's causing them to not feed these are these really complex systems that we're trying to model so a lot of my study and research basically goes into looking and predicting what sort of growth we'll see in the actual field um, and that's just really valuable to act to growers so we take a lot of data from the lab experiments and then kind of apply it as best we can to these just complex ecological systems looking at for instance timing to market right um one thing we found is that scallops, we grow scallops kind of in suspended culture. Um, that's basically in the water column, but scallops naturally live on the bottom of the ocean, right? And uh, they grow. It takes six, seven years to get to, you know, a, what we call a 10-count meat, which is sort of the larger meat size um, that people pay top dollar for. But we found that suspending them in culture really has imp- way improved growth rates. Um, I like to say it's kind of like they're being suspended in a McDonald's drive through just constantly being fed. And so, you know, you see these unexpected consequences, just of these tiny minute changes. And that's what
2: a lot of what I study essentially. Yeah. So I I touched on the, the new photobioreactor lab, um, that we built briefly, and that's sort of one, one facet of a larger research program that we have going on centered around seaweed farming right now. And so to sort of zoom out to 30,000 feet, what are we trying to do? We're, we're largely trying to look at how how we sustainably scale this industry in the Gulf of Maine and what that looks like. Are those few very large farms? Are they, is it a more distributed model of um, many more smaller farms? Where are those farms going to be? And and what are the, the techno-economic constraints of all of those pathways? And on top of all that, obviously, you have to layer climate change, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, but the Gulf of Maine is changing really quickly, and especially certain species of macroalgae are sort of already at their there's Southern Terminus. We've got some really promising aquaculture candidate species that are subarctic species that might really challenge, be challenged in the next few years. So that's a long way of saying we're focused on understanding the dynamics across all of the production cycles. So that's in the nursery, that's in the field, and that's also in the, the product types that might, come out of those things. So right now our focus in the photobioreactor lab is largely on understanding how to operationalize that technology. So how does that fit into the production stream of kelps? So we, we built an initial techno-economic model that looked at using the technology that people are using right now for kelp uh, and just scaling it to really large scales. And what does that look like? And it turns out it's wildly expensive without innovation. Um, and something we learned from that model was that at those, at, at larger scales, Something like 30% of your overall costs are sunk in the nursery and something like 25% of all of your emissions related to production are also from the nursery because you need hundreds of thousands of gallons of seawater. They all have to stay cold. You need lights, lots of energy, probably coastal real estate. So it gets really expensive really fast. So we're trying to understand how to integrate this technology into that flow in a way that scales um, because often at research scales, you know, they always say pilots Pilots never fail, but they also never scale, right? So trying to understand what are the restriction points to, and how do we oper- operationalize this at a production scale from the photobioreactor photo perspective? And that's sort of just like nuts and bolts operations, right? How do we get gametophytes from a photobioreactor onto the farm in the most efficient way? So think of like, if, if I had four of our two liter bioreactors fully scaled up with high densities, like in theory, we could seed a lot of farms. But that's, that's, I'm making it sound easier than it is. That's like a whole area that we're going to need to explore from a research perspective is how to most efficiently get gametophytes from a bioreactor and onto a farm in a way where they stay happy and also grow kelp. Um, cause right now. People will take gametophytes and then they paint them onto a spool, which is what we do right now. So if you do that, then all of your space and cost savings and energy savings from using a bioreactor are lost. Cause now you need a hundred thousand gallons of seawater again for spools. Direct seeding is an area where I think there needs to be a lot of focus where you're just taking the gametophytes directly and putting them onto your culture line and then putting them in the ocean. So you're cutting out that whole middle step of the nursery. Getting the gametophytes onto the line is only sort of the first step, right? Like the gametophyte is not like there's a whole cycle of gametogenesis and reproduction that has to come from that, right? So like they have to be happy enough to then produce eggs and sperm, those eggs and sperm have to find each other on the line and then you get couplates going from it. We're doing a, a materials study so that like we're trying to figure out, we're assuming, right, like if you move offshore that there are going to be other design considerations we need. So like your, your growth substrate, and it might not actually be a rope. It might be something like, I don't know, like a carbon bar or like a fiberglass rebar or high density polyethylene, like something that's not a rope mm-hmm. Then things can get tangled in. That's an interesting point. I wonder what, So, I guess we use rope for a reason, but yeah, um, so we're doing a material study in, on the lease site here this winter time. So we'll be doing like two different synthetic ropes, a natural fiber rope, high density polyethylene and one other substrate. So we did a tank study at Hui last winter that looked at all of these. So we figured out what the ex situ, what the best growers were, and then mm-hmm. we're using those materials out. So all of the gametophytes are going towards that. Would they, like, settle mm. on a PVC tube? In my experience, pretty much anything. But this is all sugar kelp. Like, right, know, right, right. Sugar kelp is not the answer to everything. That's what mm. I want to see other species happen. But,
3: yeah.
2: I don't know why. Yeah, I assume they had to see it on the rope. But Yeah, right? I mean, like, it grows on the buoys. It grows on... It grows on lantern nets. Lantern nets. Yeah, that. that's right. Super picky. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I understand
1: why rope is, like, the go-to, but, like, PVC, honestly, is cheap and, yeah. and interesting.
2: Yeah. Like, I don't know. I wonder if it'd be easier to work with. Yeah. High density it, polyester wing pipe was actually the, in our tank test, was the best performer. Huh? Like it, it grew best on that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm excited to see how that, I mean, that's, yeah, that's what they make polar circles and things out of for salmon farms. Right. It's rigid enough to hold its shape, but it's also flexible enough to be able to bend Yeah. waves and currents. Yeah. It'd be easier to like clean it too. Just, yeah, clean and whole fast. is awful. The other arm, that we can pursue with photobioreactors is what I was mentioning before, looking at alternative species, looking at strain selection, which may be, maybe that's, uh, you know, higher performing yields. That's sort of the low hanging fruit, but I'd really like to see us explore new and novel species that aren't being grown in Maine right now. And then beyond that, we're also looking at, uh, so our team, the team that we're working with right now is really transdisciplinary, so uh, I like Chris, um, I'm a benthic ecologist by training. So I tend to come at things from the biophysical perspective and understanding sort of the aquaculture environment interactions with the actual organisms. But we have, we also have marine uh, engineers on the team that are helping us looking at new farm designs. We have economists on the team. So we're all working together towards this common goal. Um, So we're looking at new growing areas. So can we move a little further offshore where there might be more space, but that comes with deeper water and higher energy. So what? What are the design considerations around designing farms to go in those kind of areas are there new farms we can design for areas people are growing right now that help to push the cost of production down
3: yeah so we have uh lots of research focused areas uh for oysters right now and like adam mentioned that a lot of our projects are driven by the industry you know whether they're actual questions um that are being asked by the industry uh or trends that we see and then But sometimes we do go down those rabbit holes, uh, like Adam talked about, where there's things that we are very curious about. Um, And one of those things that I, is my little passion project, is triploids versus diploid oysters. So in Maine, uh, we culture two types of oysters, uh, diploids and triploids. Uh, And so diploids are a normal oyster, and they have two sets of their chromosomes, uh, like most mammals or most animals. Um, But triploids are... Uh, also a natural type of oyster that are bred to have three sets of their chromosomes. Um, and so with these uh, three sets, uh, they grow a whole lot faster. Um, and there's sort of three uh, ideas about why why they grow faster. Uh, the first one is that triplet oysters don't reproduce very much. When they go to actually make uh, their gametes, uh, something happens where they can't, they can't fully build them and that energy is uh, reabsorbed or redirected towards... Uh, regular growth. Uh, The other idea is that uh, to hold that extra set of chromosomes, uh, they actually have to have uh, larger cells. So on average, triploid cells are about 50% larger than diploid cells. And so if you have an animal with the same number of cells, but they're 50% larger, they're going to be a little bit larger. And that's called uh, polyploidy giganticism, (laughs) which is a good word. Uh, And then the last one is uh, increased heterozygosity. Uh, So basically, heterozygosity is when you have two different uh, genes on your your chromosomes, and you have basically a higher chance of one of those being advantageous. If you have the same, uh, it still might be good, uh, but you might not perform as well in different environments. With triploids, with three sets of the chromosomes, you have an even higher chance of having uh, an advantageous uh, allele. Um, And so in Maine, they're, they're actually triploids were first developed at the Darling Marine Center in the 80s. Uh, which is which is quite great. They were trying to work with uh, triploid uh, salmon, um, and as a side project, they created triploid oysters. And uh, since then, they have exploded all over the world. In some areas, up to like ninety to hundred percent of oysters cultured are are triploid oysters, uh, which is pretty incredible. But in Maine, there's been a longstanding idea um, that due to the cold environment, oysters aren't re- reproducing very much. Uh, so triploids and diploids sort of perform the same. I got really curious about that so we have been growing triploids and diploids uh, at our experimental farm uh, and at a partner farm in the upper river uh, and it turns out they do not grow <laughs> similarly uh, the triploids grow a whole lot faster in maine at both our colder site down in the dmc uh, and our warmer site in the upper river uh, so we have been doing a bunch of different laboratory experiments to try to figure out uh, what we think is driving these differences between these two types of oysters uh, which has been really really fun for me there are There's a whole lot going on out in the world of triploids uh, and diploids right now. In some areas uh, in the U.S., uh, triploids uh, are experiencing higher mortalities than diploids. So um, right before they reach market size, sometimes, you know, an entire farm's crop of triploids might be wiped out. Um, It was termed triploid mortality, um, which is making some farmers nervous about growing them, and they don't. I think there's a lot of different ideas about, about what the cause could be. It could be disease. They appear sometimes to uh, have the same disease resistance, and then sometimes uh, there seems to be a difference. Um, it could be related to a condition when they possibly try to reproduce but aren't able to. Uh, that could be energetically taxing. So in some areas where triploids are potentially spawning, uh, there may be something going on there uh, that that harms the triploids. Um, It could be uh, multi-stress, so if there's different things that are stressing out uh, triploid oysters, there's some recent work out of uh, the West Coast that showed during their heat waves. So if triploids are exposed to heat waves and air exposure at the same time, uh, they die very quickly, whereas the diploids were actually able to handle uh, those two stresses together. So there's a lot of different uh, physiology between uh, triplet and diploids, despite the fact that they're the same species. Uh, that extra set of chromosomes seems to change a lot uh, within the animal. So there are definitely conditions probably where where diploids can outperform triploids, and that's been seen uh, in the past. It could be related to food, it could be related to temperature, it could be related to some deeper physiology within the animal.
0: From collective undertakings to the unique curiosities of each researcher, the experimental farm is not just a tool for inquiry, but a vibrant classroom as well. Chris, Adam, and Tom also recognize the farm's role as an educational platform. Whether it's teaching a new generation of scientists, giving the community a lens into aquaculture, or integrating hands-on student courses, the farm's potential reaches far beyond just research. The farm is shaping minds, fostering connections, and nurturing the future of Maine's aquaculture in an ever-evolving climate.
1: People don't like when I say that, but you know, it's we're scientists, um, not commercial aquaculture operators. We're researchers, um, you know, statistician. Like spend most of my day on the computer. But one of the beauties of it is that we can really use it as an education tool to inform people about aquaculture. You know, if you're ever by the Darling there I love giving tours. We can take people out. It's just a really accessible platform for people to learn about aquaculture in this kind of really changing climate and Maine in particular. It's just one of those industries that's growing rapidly and people don't understand it. So this farm allows us to kind of take it out, take people out and impartially sort of show them what's happening, how the process works, but it also allows us to teach young new generation Mainers. Um, each summer we try and take on interns. This summer we had a new Mainer, she, uh, a Mainer from Friendship. Um, she's a lobster woman by trade. And she came out and worked on our farm. Um, We also had another um, intern from Belfast as well. It allows us to train this younger generation to come up and work in marine science. And all these connections we make with commercial growers, it allows us to to interact and to connect and educate kind of everyone around us about what is happening and what research we're doing, which I'm really grateful for always. Because that's kind of the key is aquaculture. So, um, it's an applied science, right? It's
2: all about getting it out there and sort of making things better for everyone. Yeah, I think to echo what Chris was saying about the value of the farm from an educational perspective is that it it allows us to to get people onto a farm. And like Chris said, it might not be a very good farm in terms of being economically <laughs> viable in any way, right? It's a research farm. It is what it is. But, you know, it's incredibly convenient to access, right? It's, you can almost throw a rock and hit it from the pier if you're a really good arm, but it's also diversified. So like Tom was saying, right? We have, we have a true intertidal portion of the lease. We have a true sort of low subtitle part of the lease. We have a deep water part of the lease and we've got, it's diversified, right? So someone can come out and they can see multiple ways of how to grow an oyster. They can see scallops and lantern They can see seaweed. Um, they can see trials of softshell clams. They can see emerging species like razor clams and urchins. Um, so it's just a really neat place and kind of a one-stop shop. And then, you know, we can shoot around the corner into Clark's Cove and show people the oldest aquaculture lease in the state um, that has all also- sussles and oysters and seaweeds on it. So that's really exciting, and it dovetails really well with some of the other initiatives that are happening at UMaine and across the state as it pertains to workforce development and aquaculture. Um, so ARI offers a lot of short courses in aquaculture, for example, that been happening here at the Darling center. So not only can we take people out to see oysters and scallops and razors and clams, but we could, they can also get a little bit of hands-on how to, right? Like here's, here's how to flip an oyster cage. Here's how to grade stuff. Here's how to build an ADPI bag. Here's how to lift a lantern out of the water without destroying yourself. Sort of just a lot of practical skills, even, you know, like small boat operations around an aquaculture farm is for way different than just small boat operations in general so having that access has been really cool it's been really fun to move a lot of new faces through here um some people it's like their first experience with aquaculture so <laughs>
3: um yeah adam and, adam and chris has have already said a lot on the education side uh but one thing i think would be nice to add is uh at the darling marine center we also have a semester program for Uman students where they come down and and stay you know, at the Drowling Center, I'll uh, fall and take classes here. They're often hands-on research classes, and it's been nice to see the farm integrated into those classes. So last year, Adam taught a sustainable aquaculture course uh, where students actually did small-scale research projects out on the farm, <clears throat> which is really great. Um, pilot projects that I think some have turned into to larger studies even. Um, and then uh, this year, uh, there's a estuarine oceanography course, uh, and so part of what they're looking at is just you know, uh, what makes a good aquaculture site. So we've taken animals uh, off the farm into the lab to do experiments on temperature and food and and see how oysters and other animals uh, react. So it's been great to actually have students out there um, and have them working with the animals in the lab and uh, not just seeing how a farm operates, but, but, uh, you know, training scientists to see um, how the environment impacts aquaculture, which is going to be very important in a changing climate.
0: In the waters of Maine, ARI's experimental farm emerges as a testament to aquaculture's growing significance, and as a beacon of collaborative research and hands-on education. We've heard from Chris, Adam, and Tom how the farm navigates the confluence of science, industry, and community, unearthing the intersections of research and its tangible impact on the sector gaining a deeper understanding of the challenges, innovations, and potential an experimental farm holds.